This is Hearing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concerned, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition has been funded by a grant from Grunenthal. Now, at the time of recording this edition of Hearing Pain, that's the end of June 2016, the people of the United Kingdom have just voted to leave the European Union. That doesn't get away from the fact, however, that around 20% of Europe's adult population, that's 80 million people, suffer from chronic pain. And this costs directly and indirectly 15 to 3% of Europe's total GDP, that's gross domestic product. Those are the stark statistics presented to delegates at the European Pain Federation's Societal Impact of Pain Symposium, or SIP, held in Brussels in May of 2016. It's the sixth such symposium to discuss the socio-economic impact of pain for individuals and societies, and it went under the banner headline Time for Action, calling for the prioritisation of pain as a disease in its own right in the EU health programme. It brought together over 200 pain experts, patients, representatives and policymakers representing 28 European countries. Back in 2011, the symposium launched its Roadmap for Action at the European Parliament, an initiative to make pain more visible at the level of national and international policymakers. Tom Green, editor of Pain Concerns magazine Pain Matters, was there to meet delegates, starting with Dr Chris Wells, who's a pain relief specialist in Liverpool. He's also president of the European Pain Federation, EFIC. The roadmap to action is really an assessment of how we're doing with the policy decisions that we think are important and we identified back five years ago. So if we look at the roadmap, we can see in some countries some things are being instituted and unfortunately in other countries very little has been instituted but at least it flags up where there are weaknesses so we can now try and move forward to addressing that, which is something that we're going to do. To all people, they just think that pain's a nuisance, and usually people have had pain, so they had a toothache, and it was upsetting, but it went away the next day. So they don't really understand the misery of chronic pain. Politicians have no idea about the cost to society. They're beginning to be aware of the problem in the restriction on quality of life, Quantity of life is a a new issue and we've now got data to show people with chronic pain have a reduction in quantity of life. They die sooner. And the corollary of that is there's also information that shows us that if their pain is adequately treated, for instance with a non-steroidal, their quality of life and their quantity of life both improve. And this is hugely important. So people can live longer in a more healthy way. How much life is being lost? How much life could people expect to lose if they have untreated chronic pain? The data is not good enough to really put that across the whole population of, in Europe, 100 million chronic pain patients. But we just know that some are losing their lives through immobility, through despair, through problems with the treatments that they have, and just being ignored. And I mean, I started by doing cancer pain work, and there's no question to me, you could see people that fought and fought against their cancer and did ever so well. And eventually there came a time when they just thought, no, the pain's too much. What's the point in going on living? And I could see people just quietly giving up and saying, this is it. And so we've not been able to prove that one yet, but we all know it as clinicians. But the data that we have on disability from pain, for instance, in osteoarthritis, 
Well, that is very solid. And so that's a strong message to take to the European Parliament and also to the UK National Parliament. We can't afford to ignore pain, although the politicians are frightened because we go along and we say we want more of this, we want more of that, and they understand there isn't more. However, if we can show that we want more of this and it saves money in the long term, then I think we have got an important message and that's what we should be doing. There's no point in as doctors just being shroud waivers and saying our patients need this, because we've all got vested interest. Yeah. Even there's no point in patients just saying that. But we can say, we can look, this is the cost. We could reduce that and we need to look out better treatment, but as especially as coming out here, better prevention better education for doctors and better education for patients. And that's one of ethics strong points, education, that's what we do. How close do you think we are to really transforming education for doctors and perhaps for the, the general public as well? Well, it's improving and you can see that from the roadmap. And again, for in the UK now, one third of medical schools use pain in the curriculum for medical students, so that's good. And two years ago, I think it was none. So if we're rolling that out and in another six years it's all of them, fantastic. Then we're going to have doctors in the future who understand a bit more about pain. And from the patient's point of view, what does that mean? From the patient's point of view, that means that hopefully they can see their GP and get a sensible answer. And I think that we've already had discussions on that. And it's not just me, it's not just the patient groups. The GPs accept, first of all, they don't have the time secondly they don't have the experience to teach things like self-management they don't know how to do that and this is by far the best that we've had because we've got much more patient involvement and much more MEP involvement which of course matters there's no point in healthcare professionals sitting around talking about what wonderful ideas we have it'll never happen unless we get the patients and the politicians on board and I think we truly have so that's why it's very exciting to me I'm Jane Maylink and I'm chairman of the International Painful Bladder Foundation which is for patients with interstitial cystitis which is today mainly known as bladder pain syndrome and we cover all the comorbidities, chronic pelvic pain and everything related to that. I'm here as a patient advocate and by profession I was a translator, writer and editor and I've been able to use that now in the voluntary work for the patients. So I try to write a kind of report, not only for patients, that the patients can understand, but it's also read by various uh, health professionals. And so what will you be reporting back from this, uh, this meeting? There's been an awful lot of talk about what should be done, but I'm still waiting to see something actually being done. And I must say I was uh, rather concerned to see that the European Parliament does not have a section dedicated to health, that health is hidden somewhere under environment, which sounds utterly ridiculous today. It's vital that we ensure that people are healthy because our whole system, certainly in Western Europe, depends on people working, paying into the system before they can take out. So you've got to have a kind of balance between the two. Because if you've got too many sick people and they're not paying taxes into the system, and you've got a lot of people, far more people, taking out, 
the economy is simply going to crash. So I, I would have thought it was a priority to have uh, health as a very important section. So you're, you're clearly a passionate advocate, and that comes partly from personal experience? Uh, yes, it certainly does, because I'm a patient with interstitial cystitis, but I also have Sjogren syndrome and many other uh, comorbidities. But it took me 29 years to get a diagnosis of interstitial cystitis, and actually almost 40 years to get the right diagnosis of Sjogren syndrome. I got, uh, first of all, the diagnosis for IC, and I then discovered that there was no information available in the Netherlands where I was living. I am British, but I live in the Netherlands, married to a Dutchman. <laughs> and there was no information, and so, together with a couple of other people, we set up a patient movement, which ultimately led to a patient association. And I felt that I couldn't turn the clock back when it's taken so long to get a diagnosis, you tend to feel very angry. Why didn't they give me the diagnosis? Why did they allow these diseases to wreck my life, really? I had to change my whole ideas of a profession completely. And my whole family suffered under it because I didn't have any treatment. And not only that, if you don't know what's causing your problems, and I was sometimes very ill, you become extremely stressed and you start to doubt yourself. Now I wanted to avoid this happening to other people as far as I could. Well I'm now in my 70s and you know I'm hoping I can carry on for a bit longer because there is still so much to do. People are still not getting a diagnosis and as your von Kriensfen uh, said today Patients are often not believed by the doctors, and even I face this, that the f favourite word of, for example, neurologists is somatisation, and that stresses patients even more if they feel the doctor isn't believing them, and stress makes many illnesses worse. By somatisation, uh, what do you think they mean? Uh, psychological, actually. Um, in the past, they would say it, they would write it to your family doctor, psychological. <laughs> but now, they've changed the word. Somatisation is the favourite word, but it means the same. They just, they don't believe you. And I found a particular difficulty in the fact that I'm English but live in the Netherlands. So, when I go and see a doctor, I'm speaking a foreign language. And describing pain, especially neuropathic pain, which I have, is extremely difficult in your own language, let alone a foreign language. It's so difficult to find the right words. And I find that doctors often are very impatient about this, and they don't even help you to find the right words. They just say, oh, that's not possible, it doesn't exist. When it's simply because you've chosen the wrong words. We've now got Europe full of migrants, so I hate to think what is going to happen in hospitals when these people, with a very limited knowledge, if any, of the host country's language, are trying to explain their health problems. And this should be taken into consideration very seriously. So in English, how would you describe your neuropathic pain symptoms? 
stabbing, burning, tingling, and just horrible sensations sometimes. And sometimes it's in one place, and sometimes it's in another place. And trying to explain that to a doctor, that this pain is moving around, and one day it's very bad, and another day you might not feel it at all, and it comes suddenly, it may be short and stabbing, or it may be long and nagging, or it may be quite different, that you sort of have half sensation. Now, describing that to a doctor is very difficult. They say, well, you can either feel it or you can't feel it. I say, no, I half feel it. That doesn't exist in our book. (laughs) Being understood as a patient is one thing, but when health professionals can't even agree amongst themselves on a simple definition for chronic pain, what hope is there for the rest of us? Dr Martin Johnson was at the 2016 Societal Impact of Pain Symposium, representing the Chronic Pain Policy Coalition and the Royal College of GPs. And he chaired a session to discuss the definition of chronic pain. Is it a disease in its own right or a symptom of some other disease? Now, to the layman and even some health professionals, I guess, this may be pure semantics. So Tom asked him, why it really matters. I think that's one of the first questions. Does it matter? Mm. Uh, um, One of the things we've done quite a lot of work in the UK, and we had a big debate about it, oh, was it three or four years ago, that probably, from our perspective, it didn't matter. Right. Um, Just purely from a clinical point of view, what it mattered was to make it a long-term condition, which is what we, we, we managed to achieve. Whether it matters for patients, and this is something that I always... I'm always sort of sitting on the fence with this. I actually personally think it does matter. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's very important for patients to know that they've got a diagnosis because I think it then gives them a way forward. Yeah. Now, actually, some patients don't necessarily agree with that. Um, but it's, it's going to be an interesting debate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you had discussions with patients that you can call to mind of you know, where this has been a particular, particular problem? You know, for some patients, as long as you've, you've, you've managed to give them some form of management plan, that to me is the most important mm. thing. Um, and, but there's the occasional patients where I see where they've not been handled in the right way. Uh, and it's simply because a diagnosis of some, of some description has not been given at the start of their plan. And I'm well known for saying that, you know, it has to be assessment, assessment, assessment. Yeah. Because if you don't get that right, the journey, it's like if you don't get your ticket right at the start of a journey, you go, you end up in the wrong place. And it's exactly the same if you don't get the right diagnosis. Right. And I think there is potential of that. We're still in early days, there's no international consensus, so maybe SIP can help us do that. Because then we can translate it through. There's a very interesting article that Ann Taylor and colleagues produced um, earlier this year They've done a complete review article on whether or not pain is a disease or a symptom. That's a debate which seems to go on and on, even though EFIC, that's the European Pain Federation, and IASP, the International Association for the Study of Pain, made a declaration to the European Parliament as far back as 2001 that pain is a major health problem worldwide. Although acute pain may reasonably be considered a symptom of disease or injury, Chronic and recurrent pain is a specific healthcare problem, a disease, in fact, in its own right. 
If you've got an hour and a half to spare, you can watch and listen to Drs Anne Taylor and Martin Johnson supporting the motion Chronic Pain, a Disease in Its Own Right in a debate recorded in 2012. You can find the debate by going to the website paincommunitycentre.org and putting the words Masterclass 2012 into the search box on the top right-hand corner. I'm Elora Finlay, uh, Baroness Finlay of Llandaff, and I'm Professor of Palliative Medicine in Cardiff and Palliative Care Lead for Wales. I chair the National Council for Palliative Care. From uh, the Societal Impact of Pain meeting here in Brussels, what's your sense of how pain management is going to get taken forward at a, at a European level, and what can Europe really do for pain management? Well, I'm very glad to see that there's been a lot of talk about integrating palliative care into mainstream cancer services and integrating rather than having it as a tack-on, an add-on. I'm also glad to see that there's been a stress on the assessment of pain and then appropriate management. In the group that I was in, we discussed the impact on carers as well and on the family witnessing somebody in pain. I think I've also been quite shocked, actually, at the number of stories of really bad clinical decision-making that I've heard. For instance, the concept that consent is not valid unless it is fully informed uh, really seemed to come as a bit of a surprise to some people. It was almost as if consent to treatment was a given and people just signed on the dotted line. And in the group that I was in, I was stressing the ability of patients to refuse treatments if they didn't want them, if they didn't feel they were working, and that they still must receive all care, including ongoing monitoring of pain and pain relief. So this meeting has been very important in bringing people together, in raising awareness of the need for integration, and actually bringing pain as the fifth vital sign into mainstream cancer treatment and thinking. And what does that mean, pain is the fifth vital sign in cancer treatment? What would that change? I think what that would change is that it is everybody's duty at all times to listen to the person in distress, to listen to their pain and to do something about it. And it doesn't matter whether you're the therapeutic radiographer, whether you're a care assistant, a nurse, a physio or the porter, let alone if you're the doctor or the nurse on the ward. If the person is in pain, then they must be listened to. Pain is where the patient says it is. You need to look at the different components, the different causes, and remembering that acute, unrelieved pain that goes on and on becomes chronic pain but also that in the cancer patient, pain is often a sign of something that may be reversible because it's a signal of disease in itself. So if you ignore pain, you actually ignore the very essence of the warning lights that are there. What is different about pain management in cancer care? I would like to say something about the model that we've got in Wales at Valindra Cancer Centre because we have totally integrated palliative care 
with oncology. That means that all the patients are inpatient, so automatically under palliative care, whatever stage of treatment they're at, so that we look at symptom control, distress. If they're doing really well with their chemotherapy, that's great. We don't see them again when things are sorted. However, if they're in the unlucky group where things aren't going well and disease progresses, we've already got to know them. We link them to services outside, into the community when they go home, into other hospitals. We are part of the acute oncology uh, meeting that happens in the hospital and often lead that meeting. We're supporting the juniors in training and we're supporting other staff across the hospital. At the end of the day, the oncologist carries the final responsibility for the patient's care, but we're responsible for everything we do, but we report to them. And over all the years that we've been running that system, we haven't had any problems, thank goodness, in relationships with other people, but we've had an awful lot of patients who we've helped improve their symptoms and improve their quality of life who otherwise if we'd been waiting for a referral we probably would never heard about. When I hear as a layperson the word palliative care it makes me think that's for people who are dying. That's really sad the end of life story has taken over from actually the helping people live well until they die story which is what palliative care is all about. We're all going to die. We all have to plan for the worst, but we can hope for the best. And in whatever time we've got left, and let's face it, none of us know when that is, in that time, we can do all we can to improve patients' quality of life. And if we do that and we support the carers, then when that person dies, the impact on the carers and the family will be far less damaging if they have prepared for their death if people know what they want. So I would hope everybody listening to this will make sure that they personally have made a will. They have told their family what they want when they become ill and when they die. They've thought about being an organ donor perhaps. Um, All kinds of things that if they're not sorted out when somebody dies, the family is left with a terrible, terrible burden. That was Baroness Elora Finlay talking to Pain Concerns' Tom Green. John Lindsay is chair of the Patient and Information Support Group Chronic Pain Ireland. When you travel to Europe, mainland Europe in particular, and you hear what's happening in other countries, you then appreciate that perhaps what you have back home is not that bad after all. So I don't think there's any particular country in Europe that could put its hand up and say we are doing extremely well for people living with this horrendous condition. And what would you say would be what you'd hope would come forward out of the societal impact of pain meeting we've had today? I think the most important thing is creating awareness among the medical profession to start with, particularly GPs and at consultant level, maybe neurologists and rheumatologists who still don't quite get this whole chronic pain condition. So I think educating all the members of the medical profession and I think everybody needs to have a look at their medical schools and change the curricula and have pain medicine as a module and I think that should be absolutely number one priority. Where is Ireland on that? Pain medicine has been declared a medical specialty and as a result of that uh, our six medical schools are now looking at the curricula for trainee doctors and they're going to have pain modules Mm -hmm. uh, for all of them because at present I think 
uh, for every hour that a medical student spends on pain, a vet spends five hours. Yeah. You know, so that needs to be addressed. It, it is changing and hopefully it will change throughout Europe. So that's the first thing coming out today. And then generally to create awareness, but there's no point in creating an awareness and getting people's expectations up if there are no services there to back up what is required to treat somebody with chronic pain. And there is no doubt they need a multidisciplinary team approach. Now, creating awareness is the aim of the Red Balloon project launched at the 2016 Societal Impact of Pain Symposium. As its headline says, 100 million people suffer from chronic pain. Help turn statistics into voices. My name is uh, Joffrey Griefen. I'm the president of Pain Alliance Europe. And we're starting today with the awareness campaign uh, called the Red Balloon Project. And you can find that on the hashtag uh, release the pain. You can find all the information over there or in the, on the website uh, www.theredballoonproject.eu. So what's the idea? The idea of the project is to raise awareness for chronic pain. It's about a balloon, a red balloon, which uh, stands for the, the pain you have. And you try to release the pain, so get rid of the, of the balloon. Uh, you can do that by, by uh, popping it up, making it kapot, uh, or leave it, in the, leave it in the air. But for pollution reasons, better not put it in the air, but <laughs> sure. yeah, yeah. save it uh, in, and get rid of it in a nice way. But it, it's just raising awareness for chronic pain. So the idea is to get how many people to, to be involved? Uh, we would like to have uh, one million people having a picture with a red balloon on one of the Instagram or <laughs> Facebook or Twitter accounts. So we have that. And then we can hear in Brussels to the European politician say, well, so many people are, want to have something done on chronic pain. Now it's time for you to do something. And to do something and get involved in the Red Balloon project, go to hashtag release the pain, no gaps, release the pain on social media sites like Twitter and Instagram or the website, which is the Red Balloon Project, no gaps, the Red Balloon Project dot EU. I just remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you, your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Don't forget that you can download all editions and transcripts of airing pain from Pain Concern's website, which is painconcern.org.uk. There you'll find information and support for those of us with chronic pain, our families and carers, and for health care professionals. There's also information on how to order Pain Concerns magazine, Pain Matters. Now, before we end this edition of Airing Pain at the European Pain Federation's Societal Impact of Pain 2016 Symposium, I'll just remind you of what Dr Chris Wells, the President of the European Pain Federation, said to Pain Matters editor Tom Green at the start of this programme. There's no point in healthcare professionals sitting around talking about what wonderful ideas we have. It'll never happen unless we get the patients and the politicians on board, and I think we truly have. So that's why it's very exciting to me. So you've heard from the patients and their representatives. Last word 
to the politician. My name is Therese Griffin, member of the European Parliament for the northwest of England. What I hope comes out of today, Tom, is real recommendations that we can take forward as members of Parliament in terms of putting chronic pain and acute pain higher on the agenda, but also enabling people to have the wherewithal to return to work if they wish to by being treated as a whole person. 400 million citizens in the EU suffering from this kind of pain. They have to be able to pay a full part in society. We've got to be able to support them. You know, it's not just that bit of your body. It's the contribution you can make as a person to society. It's your family. It's your work colleagues. It's what you do in your local community. This is too important. It's got to be holistic.